This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Jamila Rizvi is an author, presenter and political commentator and co-founder of the popular event series Tea with Jam and Claire. A past advisor to both the Rudd and Gillard governments, she has been named by the Australian Financial Review as one of the 100 most influential women in the country. Now, Jamila, uh, you are a self-proclaimed writer of lists. My wife says I'm Nigel of the lists. That will be on my tombstone. Uh, so does that mean that you found choosing five things really easy because you're just a list type of person or, or did you find it a challenge? No, I didn't find it really easy because my list started out being a lot longer than five. Right. So I wrote my list and it was extremely long. It was similar to how it is when I go to the shopping centre and come back from the grocery store and somehow spent $500. <laughs> I swear I didn't need that many things. <laughs> no, no, we've, interview- we've interviewed on Five My Life one of your past bosses in Kevin and one of your mates, as in Rosie, Rosie Waterland. Did you yes, discuss... Yes, I've listened to both. <laughs> oh, oh. Did you discuss your choices with either of those people or did you just do it, or, or with Jeremy, or did you just keep it to yourself when you, when you honed it down? You know, I actually, normally I am someone who does things a little bit by committee and I run things past people, but for whatever reason, this time I didn't do that. I just sat down and did it myself. So you're, you're getting raw me without the sensible legal filters of my husband. Excellent. Good on you. Well, listen, we're going to start, as is traditional, with your film. Uh, and you have chosen the film adaptation of Roger and Hammerstein's 1959 stage musical, the five Oscar classic, The Sound of Music. Tell us about that. Well, this uh, film and its soundtrack are... I think they are a recurring theme in my life for whatever reason. I, uh, as a little kid, my family moved to Malaysia. And uh, at that time in the late 80s, we couldn't get English speaking television in Malaysia. So my family, extended family back at home used to record things off the TV and try and skip the ads and inevitably skip parts of the program. And uh, they would send them over to my parents and that's what I would watch. But as a result, I didn't have a lot of range. But The Sound of Music was one of those films and I would watch it again and again and again and again. And you said you said in your email to me that you and your sister would, would sing all the songs? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I still know the words to every single song. And I actually think if pushed, I could probably quote the entire movie script as well. And I'm still really looking forward to the point that I get to sit down and show it to my little boy. But I'm thinking kind of nuns and Nazis is still... I don't know, it's going to go over the head of a uh, just-turned-five-year-old. <laughs> We're not quite there. It, it's quite an interesting film because it's, it's all very, you know, la di and uplifting and sing-along, but it's a pretty serious, bloody topic. I mean, the, 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 the narrative in it isn't a laugh. I mean, it's a musical. No, not but at all. They're escaping the Nazis. I mean, yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, you, I think you associate it with, you know, being outside in the rain and getting your long white nightgown wet and people being afraid of thunderstorms and making clothes out of curtains. But yeah, there is a really scary undertone and a really dark undertone. You know, that gorgeous song, I am 16 going on 17, which is the great romantic first romantic moment of the film. I mean, Liesl's falling for a Nazi, you guys. Like, it's not okay. <laughs> now, I have to ask you, tell me a bit about your childhood. You've got one sister? Yes, one little sister. She's three years younger than me and about five inches taller. And do you still call her little sister or does she smack you around the head when you say the little sister? She calls me little and I call her little. Okay. And what were you like? So the battle continues. <laughs> what, what were you like uh, as, as uh, young girls growing up in your family in Malaysia and beyond? We were incredibly close. My sister was born just after we moved back from Malaysia. My mum would have been pregnant when we moved back. And, you know, I think we, we were that very typical two-child family in that we did everything together and really, I think, you know, would have gone to the wall for each other, if that makes sense. I remember her being picked on in primary school um, and performing in a school concert. And I just gave this death stare to this six-year-old girl on stage the entire time because I knew she'd been picking on my sister. And she was terrified. And I was happy with that. And so incredibly close. And at the same time, we used to fight constantly. Right. I don't think we really liked each other till we were a bit older. <laughs> Listen, no, no, we're going to, for your second choice, uh, we're, we're going to come forward about 45 years and we're going to enter a world of radically different uh, gender politics because you have chosen the 2011 7 million copy selling non fiction memoir of Caitlin Moran, How to Be a Woman. Uh, tell me about that and why you've chosen it. I was someone who probably wouldn't have called myself a feminist as a teenager. I look back on my politics at that point and really feel uncomfortable and a little bit cringy about it. But I think coming through university, becoming involved in politics and seeing the realities of what workplaces in particular are like for women meant that I had a real crash landing into feminism. And Caitlin Moran was a little bit like my white girl introduction. I think she really, with that book, with humour and care, opened my eyes at the time of reading it to a level of recognition of patriarchy and what was going on in the world that perhaps I hadn't really twigged onto. And the reason I chose it is at that moment in time, I think it really broadened my political horizons around feminism. And then within a few years, I think I'd moved beyond it to a point that I would look back on it and feel like, no, this is this is feminism for middle-class white girls. This isn't the inclusive kind of feminism that I want to be a part of. And so I still find it incredibly valuable um, because I think it was a bit like a gateway drug right. for me. Sure. Um, but now being a bit older and a bit more evolved, I suppose, in my own thinking, I can also see a lot of what's wrong with it. And, and can you 
talk to me a little bit about that? I mean, I mean, I read that at the time, the, the How to Be a Woman. It got me in trouble, actually, in my book, in my book club because I chose it as the book. It's quite a blokey book club. They go, what do you want about Nigel? Uh, um, but can you tell me about where it's evolved to, the, the, the difference between the, 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 the Jamila Moran feminism and the Jamila Now feminism? Yeah, I think uh, Caitlin Moran, I think, is incredibly useful for particularly younger women who are coming to feminism for the first time and are seeing it through the prism of their own world and what's happening to them. So are very focused on what's happening to them at work, what's happening to them at home, the way they're valued in society for how they look above how they act or how they behave and the expectations that we place on little girls, on teenage girls in a variety of ways that I think force them into these very tight, stereotypical boxes. And Caitlin Moran, I think, is also very good at punching out of the um, very middle upper class space of white feminism in that she is more inclusive in that regard. She talks about being from a working class background. She talks about unionism. So I think in that regard, the book's great. It's funny, it's warm, and it's very personal. But it is a very individualized feminism. And I think over time, you start to see and understand the intersections of your feminism and going beyond how it might be good for you and more how patriarchy can actually help white women and has done for a long time. Um, so I think a, a lot more reading and a lot more understanding, and I think I've been doing that at the same time as most of the world has, right? Sure. <laughs> it feels like we're all still catching up uh, in this space, and I still feel like I'm playing catch-up and I'm still that person that picks up a book and makes notes in the margins and realises the failings of my own concepts. I, it, it's fascinating here you talk. I, I remember, again, getting weird looks. In 1987, I think it was, I read Andrea Dworkin's Intercourse. Have you read any of Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and, and thinking, oh, my God, I haven't got a clue. Uh, um, so so where would you, um, to, to, to somebody who's listening to this who, who wants to be a, uh, you know, a, a helpful influence as much as they can be in the issue, who wants to, you know, I, I understand that I can't understand, if that makes sense. Um, yes. But I'd like to be a good bloke and a better bloke, is where would you recommend what texts and authors that someone would start with? Not to be a fully evolved, you know, the solution, but you go, take an unreconstructed bloke, would you say, oi, pick up a copy of, of Moran or Dworkin or Shea Height or, 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 or Gina Davis or, or I mean, I, I don't know, where would you recommend someone who wants to join in would, would start? I think that's a wonderful question to start off with um, because I think wanting to learn, wanting to be better is absolutely the starting point for anything, right? And I think too often when we talk about discrimination and groups in our society who are disadvantaged for whatever reason, those of us who are in the group that is advantaged tend to think the best thing we can do is a lot of talking. When I suspect the best thing we can do is a lot of listening. Sure. Um, and reading is absolutely the best way for us to start with that. Um, so where would I begin? I'd actually start on social media. Don't dip into books first. Start ah. with columns. Start with dipping in and out so you can hear as many voices as you can. I would start changing up um, who you look to. Here in Australia, I would start by reading 
the Uluru Statement from the Heart, I would be listening to uh, Indigenous activists like Teela Reid or Nakia Louie. Um, to make sure that you've done your history, I'd be going back and reading some Virginia Woolf. I would be reading in more a modern perspective. I'd be looking to Tara June Winch or Maxine Benaber Clark. Um, Roxanne Gay, Bad Feminist, is I think really becoming a real seminal text in this space, if you can say that for something that's only a few years old. A little bit of Rebecca Traster probably wouldn't go astray. This is um, fantastic. because I can give you a long list. Well, well this is great because <laughs> where I would start as, as uh, uh, you know, I'm just stereotypical me, whatever I am. I, I, I like Tina Fey, Bossy Pants and the Gina Davis Institute. And so I'm probably looking at the wrong places. I haven't even heard of half the people you've, you've mentioned. So I, I will be writing them down when I re-listen to this. And, and, and Having take said a- that, I love the work the Gina Davis Institute oh, do. The, the work they do, unpicking films on, on the and Disney what cartoons. we're showing little girls oh, is just mind-blowing. It's brilliant. So the Disney cartoon, it, it just spun my head around where you, you get the... Uh, the, the, the girl with the massive eyes, the massive, massive eyes and the inky-pinky waist, and, and their role in the cartoon is to be, like, saved or, or, or you know, or, or whatever. And it's, it's go... So, so the, the Bechdel test, you know the Bechdel test, which I yes. laugh my ass off. I just love that, where you go, how can a film not have two women not have a conversation not about a man ever? It, it's yeah. just incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. So women characters are less likely to appear in crowd scenes. Women characters are less likely to have a name in a script. They usually have other interactions with women to discuss a man, as you say, where they have interactions with men. They are almost always sexualized or infantilized or their servants. Yes. So <laughs> the, the, once you start looking, I think, at content and at film and television with that kind of lens, you can't unsee it. No anymore right and it becomes as stark as when you sit down and I've got a five-year-old boy and I'll pick up a book to read him that I remember loving as a kid and you get five pages in and you're like this is not appropriate (laughs) anymore there's a bit in the uh, the jungle book which I mean how can you not love the jungle book but at the end oh it forget all that bollocks he's seen a girl (laughs) so the girl's got a thing on it a basket on her head and, and it's sort of like oh did we need that last does everything have to? I am I, um, trying to make a film out of a book, and, and I mean, meant I uh, had to be talking to some of these characters in in Hollywood. And, and this person said to me completely seriously, "There's only one uh, script, Nigel." And I went, "Oh, really? I I think I've got a different one because it's my book." And you know, there's only one. And I go, "Oh, what's that? The delayed route." Oh. And I go, "The what?" And he and then he went through all these films. You know that. Like Jungle Book isn't about Jungle Book and Mowgli and the bear and Baloo. It's about the last 10 seconds when he sees the girl. Anyway, very good. Well, listen, you're going to make me a better man because I'm going to go off and try and uh, research some of those names that you've uh, mentioned. So thank you for that. I'll... You are most welcome. I really appreciate I'm happy it. to provide an even longer list. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're going to go to your third choice uh, mm. and we're going to uh, talk about You've Got a Friend by Carol King, but it's really important that we add the right version to the five of my life spotify playlist that has everyone's song on it and you're not choosing the 1971 version that carol did or the 1971 version that james did both of which went to number one you're choosing the 2010 version that they did together is that correct that's correct look i love both of them independently but my main focus has to be that you don't go james taylor on his own 
And I think they're great as a duo. But also, he didn't. Do you know the story? She wrote the song. Yes. Right? And he asked if he could record it. And she, because she's lovely, said yes. So he got a number one before she released hers. And then he, she got number one. And then, So this is your wedding song. Yes, it was. This was uh, the song that my husband and I walked out of the non-church, <laughs> the, the room, right. uh, um, to. It is, uh, this song is it's similar to The Sound of Music, has come in and out of my life so many times. It was a favourite as a little kid on car trips. I remember listening to uh, the whole of Tapestry, actually, but my mum would always play the Carole King and James Taylor together version when she could for my sister and I um, when we were in the car. Uh, and I remember it, it is how I define swimming lessons. I remember being a little bit wet and uncomfortable on the way home, sitting in a towel and belting out, you've got a friend with my family. Um, it became our wedding song for my husband and I, so it became special then. And it's now my little boy's lullaby of Aww. choice. It's what he asks for always. So uh, <laughs> this song just keeps coming up in my well, life. Well, so it's one of those wonderful things where it is brilliant as a tra-la-la, but also it's a beautiful message. I mean, I mean, just as a, as a poem, it's a fantastic sort of moral within it. Um, anyway, um, being a mum, Right, I've got four kids. You've got it's one, isn't it? Still one, Ruffy. It, yeah. it is uh, given. I mean, I find it exhausting just reading about you, let alone being you. You are you are the uh, the other end of the spectrum of me on the ambition work hard scale, which is a which is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, but chat me through uh, how it was for you becoming a mum, because a baby doesn't give two hoots about your gender politics or your politics. He just wants to be fed and changed and couldn't give a shit about your career at Mamma Mia or whatever else you go, you know, wah, wah. Uh, um, was that easy, difficult, or, or how did you find that? Well, I think it was, I went into it remarkably unprepared. Um, I spent most of the pregnancy focusing on how my team at work were going to cope without me for a few weeks as opposed to focusing on, like, being ready to have a child, which probably I could have put some more effort into. Um, I worked up until the day he was born. Um, I went into labour on the first day I had off <laughs> and he was born on the day he was due. Um, <laughs> he's a very prompt, well-behaved child. I found those first few weeks incredibly difficult, mm -hmm. incredibly difficult. Um, I He wasn't a particularly complex baby. He wasn't sick. He was healthy. He fed relatively well. I just, I had been so used to being good at things. I'd been the kind of kid who, if I worked really hard, I could master most things. And you can't master a baby. <laughs> no matter how hard you work and no matter how, no matter how hard you try and how many things you read, it, they do what they want on their schedule. And that lack of control and lack of routine really messed with me. Um, I will admit there was a moment where Jeremy got home and from work, I think Ruffy would have been about two weeks old, and Jeremy got off the tram and I was waiting at the tram stop for him. I was that anxious for him to get home. And we walked around the corner into the apartment and I burst into tears and I said, I've ruined my life. No. Oh. And, you know, then it gets easier yeah. and it gets better. And I think by the time Ruffy was six months, I'd fallen wildly in love with him. And, you know, people talk about postnatal depression and mental illness and anxiety that can surround pregnancy and having a newborn baby. That wasn't me. That wasn't my experience. I just didn't like it. Mm. And I didn't 
love that little baby the day he arrived. And I, and I just couldn't figure out what, I, what was wrong with me. And there was nothing wrong with me. It just took me a little bit of time. Um, yeah. But I think for new parents, we're taught not to say that out loud, like that's not okay. Um, for me, love took a little bit longer, but he is like, he is so much fun. Like, the one thing I always try and tell new parents now is, you know, people will talk to you about how hard it is and it is hard. People will talk to you about how much love you'll have. And that's true as well. But people don't tell you how much fun it is. No one tells you that you have more fun than you ever had before the baby came along. Like little people are hilarious. Um, and I just feel like every day is brighter and lighter and sillier because I've got this ridiculous, funny, clever, warm-hearted little person hanging around. Um, I'm definitely a better parent when I'm working. Right. I'm definitely a better parent of someone who can talk. <laughs> I found the baby is really hard. Um, but now I have such a good relationship with that little kid. And, um, you know, I miss him when he goes to sleep at night. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I'm a big softy. I, I, I love babies' fat wrists. And, 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 <laughs> and also their posture. Like, they've got a mate, you know, forget Pilates and yoga. Just look at, a, look at a young baby sitting up. Perfect posture. And those, That's true. And, and those little pajamas they have with the stupid rockets or the ponies. <laughs> love all that stuff. I just, I think I just enjoy the conversation and the discussion. You know, the, my kid at the moment, I don't know why, he caught the end of an episode of MasterChef before bed the other night. I don't even know how that happened because we don't really watch much live TV. We watch everything on Netflix. But anyway, he caught the end of MasterChef and now he wants to cook everything. Like he's five, he can't cook. Um, but we were making pizzas the other night. We taught him how to make the dough and he was putting on the, you know, tomato paste and all the bits and cutting things with a butter knife, which took quite a long time. And uh, we sat down to dinner and he said, I think someone should say cheers to the chef. <laughs> and I was just like, yes. <laughs> like dinner is normally just, you know, a point in the evening where you eat and he makes it fun. We are going to move on to the fourth choice where things may take a slightly darker turn because um, your, your health battles are, gosh, they're, you know, very sort of harrowing to, to read about. Uh, you, you've chosen Melbourne Private Hospital, the, 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 which it was the location for two of your, well, the two brain surgeries that you had. Um, do you want to tell us about, tell us about that? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to pick a happier location, but <laughs> for whatever reason, I... You know, when you speak about the most significant places in my life, that is a really significant place. It's, um, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor at the end of 2017. Um, I had, it was an enormous shock, an enormous shock. I didn't have the standard headaches and memory loss before, um, finding the tumor. We found it early, which was a great thing, but it did mean that. I, I just had no clue. Like I, I remember waiting for that first surgery and just thinking at some point someone's going to call from the hospital and say, I'm sorry, we mixed up the scans. You're <laughs> fine. Nothing wrong with your brain. Um, but that didn't happen. Um, and then the tumour came out and six months later that stupid thing had grown back and 
I had to get it out again. And the second time was a really big surgery and ended up being a very dangerous surgery. And I weirdly, despite it being a place where I almost died on multiple occasions and where I think I have experienced the highest level of fear I've ever had in my life, it's also somewhere I feel really safe. Um, We have an amazing medical system. The doctors and nurses who have looked after me are like actual gods in my, in my, in my little world. And, um, for whatever reason, I, I feel safe in that hospital. I, I, even though it's a place where I've gotten some awfully bad news in my life, I still go there and I think of the people who made me feel safe, the people who looked after me, the people who sat next to me and talked to me in the middle of the night once my visitors had gone home. Um, you know, I, I laugh about things like my sister breaking into closets to get more blankets because people weren't coming fast enough. And I remember doing laps of the brain surgery ward because I knew my surgeon wanted me up and walking and they wouldn't let me go out of the ward without someone else. And no one had come to visit that afternoon. So I just walked in circles (laughs) around the ward for three hours. And I I weirdly feel an affinity to the place, even though it's a really ugly building. (laughs) And, um, you know, I've never had that much fun there. So I've got an American friend who's a little bit self-helpy and one of the things that he does is when obviously bad things happen, he he doesn't ask the obvious question, which is, you know, what was bad about that? You go, well, I've just crashed my car. My car doesn't work. It's obvious. Is he asks himself to ask a moronic question. So I've crashed my car. What's good about it? Now, yeah. most most times you can't think of an answer, but just even asking that question can reframe how you look at it. You go, mm-hmm. well, I didn't want to go to the meeting that I was driving to, so what's good is I haven't got to meet Bill. Anyway, so I'm going to ask you a question that is going to sound moronic, <laughs> but please bear with me on five of my life. So what was the best thing about being told, you know, you had a brain tumour and, and having to go through the, the process you went through? I don't think there was anything good about being told. I can't even find some light to put on that. I went through some seriously um, bad patches there um, where the fear got the better of me and I I think the tumour was getting the better of me at the same time now Mm -hmm. that I look back on it and um, anxiety just went out of control. Well, I remember I mean, as a mum, I mean, gosh, I can't, I mean, I just can't imagine. It was just hideous. I slept in my little boy's bed the last night that I spent at home before the surgery and... I didn't sleep, just lay there the whole night thinking about what his life might be like without me. And I did that the night before both surgeries. Um, but there has been some good. Um, I think there's probably two things out of being sick that have been good for me. Um, the first one is I think it's to- taught me to be a little bit more empathetic. I, I have always been someone who has had very high and exacting standards of myself, but also of other people, perhaps to the point, I think of a little bit of frustration and coldness on occasion. And I think it's forced me to slow down and consider more often that someone might be going through something I'm not aware of. Um, and weirdly, you know, people get nervous about telling me when things are bad in their lives. Now they go, I mean, like, it's nothing compared to what you've gone through. And you're like, no, no, no. Like if this is big for you today, if this is scary for you today, if this is debilitating for you today, then it doesn't matter what it is. I don't get to be the one that validates how bad it is. Yeah. Um, 
if it's bad for you in that moment, it's bad. So let's unpack that. And I think it's made me a, a better friend and a better partner and a better mother in that regard. And I've also made some amazing friends. Sure. Um, I've met people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And, you know, while I would take the tumour back in instance, there's no part of me that goes, oh, I'm glad I went through it. I'm not glad. It was horrible. And I wish I'd never went through it. I wish I wasn't living with the many disabilities I have now. I wish I didn't need medication to be alive. I wish I had the energy that I used to have and the brain function that I used to have. But I wouldn't trade the friends that I've made along no. the way. Not not for the world because they're... I'm so lucky that they have walked into my life and a lot of them have walked into it through illness, through shared illness. And how is your, I mean, I've listened to a variety of interviews that you've given and read as much as I could. Is, is how's the memory? That was something that you spoke quite yeah. movingly about. You go, you know, is that, is that, you know, still affected or? Yeah, it is. Um, it, so after the two brain surgeries, the stupid bugger grew back again. Um, Rosie Waterland, who you've interviewed before, named my tumour jams jerky because <laughs> she thought that we could, like, preserve it and put salt on it or something yeah. when it came out. I don't think she realised it would go to medical waste, <laughs> that I would not be keeping it. Um, um, but I, yeah, I, I suppose there's a lot of different things that go wrong now. Like, um, you know, I'm looking at you, but I can't see you properly out of the left side of my right. um, vision and... Um, I, I'm on a whole lot of, uh, there's significant parts of my brain that just don't function anymore, including some really weird ones. Like my body can't balance its own water. So I don't know when I'm thirsty and when I need to go to the bathroom, I have to have drugs that tell me what to do. Um, which is really whack, right? <laughs> um, I don't produce cortisol, which is really dangerous, obviously. So adrenaline will get me through something really difficult or scary or when my body is pushed. But for you, when your adrenaline sort of stops pumping, you go, you lean back on cortisol, whereas I lean back and there's nothing. So I will just faint. Right. Um, so there's some really difficult things. The memory I think is confronting because it feels so much of like the essence of me that it's not this sort of, it's not about the physical carrier that's moving who I am around. It's, um, it's part of who I am. And, uh, you know, it's still there. And I have better days and worse days. Definitely if I've eaten well and slept well, it's better like it is for everyone. But, um, I do find it hard and I still find it quite embarrassing. I think I'm, especially if I'm doing television or something like that and I'm on my feet and thinking quickly and I am staring down the barrel of the camera and I don't know who the, who the treasurer is, not because I don't know who the treasurer is yeah. because I, I am a journalist who works in politics, <laughs> but, but because I can see his face, but I don't know his name. Yeah. Now, you know, I know Josh Frydenberg. I've interviewed him many times. I've worked <laughs> with him. I've been on stage with him. I've um, been to lunch with his wife, you know, I, I, but I will just not know who he is for a moment. And that's hard. Yeah. Um, that sense of feeling not as sharp as I used to be is really confronting. And I think it's, it's a hard one to explain to people because even people as close as Jeremy, my husband, will say, oh, you can't, you can't tell. It's fine. You cover it really well. And you think it's it's not just about covering it, it's about knowing it. Yeah. And knowing I used to be more intelligent than I am because I could remember things better and I and I don't have that anymore. That that is hard. 
So you've just, I've just had a little, a little wave of shame because I was about to say what Jeremy said. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you see, you're trying to be very lovely, as is he. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to move on to your fifth choice. It's your wooden dining table. Uh, yes. Tell me about the table and why you've chosen it and the story behind it. Okay. So, you know, there's those sort of sad person lists of what you're supposed to buy for anniversaries, like... I think the first one is paper. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the second one is cotton, something like that. I've got, I'm going to have them all wrong now. Um, but my husband and I agreed early on because we're really bad at gifts that we would use this template for our wedding anniversary. Ah. And our wedding anniversary is a tough one because it's the 21st of December. So we're about to go into Christmas and you've got to get another present for each other. And so it gets overwhelming. So we thought this would be a really good framework for us. And we have stuck with it. And then when I got sick, we just started forgetting because <laughs> we had other things on our minds. And then we came around to the fifth year and uh, my husband said, oh, you know, we've got to get back on board, right? Otherwise we don't deserve the diamonds when we're 50. <laughs> like we've got to get back on board. Um, it's wood. And I was like, no, you'll buy me something stupid. <laughs> Let's just leave it. Um, and then I said, oh, we, I, I really want a new dining table. And he sort of said, but we don't need one. I said, we do. I want a giant dining table that seats 12, 14 people, right? I want this huge dining table so that all those days I spent on my own in a hospital or only having the energy to say hello to one friend, I want to leave that completely behind me. Um, I am a massive, like, true definition of an extrovert, and I know it's the time for introverts, and we now are valuing the introverts, and good on you. I am not you. Um, <laughs> I have really missed people during this coronavirus lockdown sure. period. I missed people when I was sick. I missed all of that. And so it's ended up being just the best wedding anniversary gift of this giant table, which is way too big for our house, and I don't care. Um, but I want to ask you about your extrovertism. Uh, it is A, how that manifests itself. Forget, forget, oh, I say forget, but I mean, as an irrespective of any lockdown or COVID, but just generally, uh, and how that plays itself out in your social life, but also your work life. And can you can you bear to be around introverts? Are all your friends, I mean, is your dinner table a nightmare because it's lots of people, shouty people, <laughs> or, 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 or do you mix it up? Tell me about that. No, I, I definitely mix it up. I like being around people. I don't care about their level of extroversion right. or introversion. I think my husband's quite introverted. Um, and both my parents are quite introverted, interestingly. My sister and I definitely are not. Um, no, it's it's not about the kind of people I like to be around. I, I like to think I've got quite a diverse group of friends in, in all regards, but I like being surrounded by people and I get my energy from being around people. I feel quite lethargic and tired if I spend a lot of time on my own. Um, that doesn't recharge me the way that I know it'll recharge my husband. Like if he needs to be recharged, he'll go, he'll drive down the beach, spend two hours alone in the car, surf for five hours, you know, say hello to one person, um, get back in the car, spend two hours alone again, and he'll feel really energized by having done that. I am the opposite. I am energized by going out to lunch with my girlfriends or filling our house with way too many people I think it reached its absolute peak when about six months ago, my husband banned me from having more than two social events in our home per day because I had tried to have like 
15 people for a big family lunch and then have 50 of our mates for a barbecue <laughs> that night with all their children. So I can definitely overdo it. But I have found this, I have found this coronavirus lockdown really rough and I feel really tired. Like I get really sleepy from not seeing people. Um, and in my work life, I, I like to be surrounded by lots of people. I like working in a team far more than I like working solo. Okay, now, now here we go. So I, I'm a little birdie told me that um, one of these days you're going to be the Prime Minister of our fair land. Um, talk to me about... <laughs> sure. I'm going to have to meet the bird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think you've... I mean, essentially, having, we had Tanya Plebersek on. But we need someone like you in the top job. Have you got ambitions to um, enter that realm in a different way and, and go for the top office? Not particularly, to be honest. I... I, I was really interested in politics as a young person. Um, I worked for Kevin Rudd uh, in his office and then I worked for Kate Ellis um, during Julia Gillard's government and I loved that work. I um, have remained interested and engaged in politics and I think I think there will definitely come a point in my life where I start to get sick of writing about and talking about politics and I want to be doing things again, whether that, that's as a public service um, in the public service or um, actually as part of a government, I'm not sure. But I I have seen up close the toll those kinds of jobs take and I've seen the awfulness that goes on behind the scenes and often not behind the scenes anymore, yeah. <laughs> just out in the public. And I, it, the career has become less and less appealing. Um, I think I've probably become more naive about it, if anything, because I still like to think about politics in a frame of what can be done and this enormous budget, which allows you to do good things for people, to make lives easier, to make lives better, to make um, workplaces fairer, to make people's homes safer. There's so much a government can do. And I still think in those terms, as opposed to the I'm going to spend most of my time flying to Canberra and arguing with people I don't like very much and not seeing my family. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, that, that's not as idealistic as I'd like it to be, but um, I think I've got a pretty good job right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, it's interesting. I mean, A, I asked because someone told me that, but B, th there are certain people like our dear friend in New Zealand who, who break the mould and give a little bit of yeah. hope that maybe it hasn't got to be done in the old way. And so, yeah, interesting. May just well, um, well I'm going to watch I, this I space. I hope there are more people like her. I hope there are more people like her. But, you know, I, in, in a few weeks um, I'm interviewing Julia Gillard. She's got a new book out and I think she is tremendous, a tremendous thinker, a tremendous operator. I think despite all the bull that was thrown at her, she did an excellent job as Prime Minister in extremely difficult circumstances. And, yeah, look at, like, look at how she was treated. I, the number of people who say to me, When's, where's our Jacinda Ardern? When's she coming along? And I feel like saying, she was here <laughs> and you were all horrible. <laughs> Do you deserve another one? I, I don't think so. I, I tell you what, I mean, I, I, I'm a political ignoramus, but if you look at Julia's behaviour post, I mean, she's been a shining example and it puts the others to shame. You, you know, I mean, all that crap she had to put up with, I mean, I mean, irrespective of wherever you sit on the political spectrum, she has behaved incredibly graciously and statesmanlike. I mean, so even even if you were just to judge her post her prime ministership, you go, she makes the others look like lightweights. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah.
Now, um, I'm going to ask you the six traditional question. So, okay. uh, I would like you, Jamila, to tell me who you would like to hear on Five of My Life next and why. Ooh. You know, I didn't know I got, to, I got this question. Now I'm <laughs> delighted. Um, have you had Jan Fran yet from the Briefing podcast? No, not at all. Jan is amazing. She used to host The Feed on SBS. Uh, she is a comedian and speaker and activist and she is both hilarious and I think the best explainer of complex things simply I've ever met. And she's really good fun. Get Jan on. That's perfect. Consider it, consider it done. Uh, and Jamila, thank you so much. I, I have just adored this conversation. You're, you're very generous and open and thank you for being patient with my ignorance. And uh, I wish you lots of love and success and happiness in the future. Oh, that's very kind. The pleasure was all mine. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 